Hey, thanks for the download today. It's your host, Brandon Laws. Welcome back for another episode of Transform Your Workplace. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. At Zenium, we recognize the need for proper training and development for new and rising managers and leaders. That's why we created a learning and development subscription program that you can get unlimited virtual workshops and e-learning courses for you and all of your managers and employees. To learn more, click on the link in the show notes or go to zeniumhr.com. Today's guest is Sarah Adler, the CEO and founder of Wave. Today's discussion centers around mental well-being, mostly heightened by the challenges of COVID-19 pandemic, but mostly with how we're working in today's modern workforce. We dive deep into key workplace issues such as screen time, communication strategies, generational differences, and effective leadership practices, all in the context of mental health. So you're going to gain a lot of insights from Sarah, who's an expert in this area. Hope you enjoy today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. And if you would be so kind as to share with a friend or give us a five-star rating and review. And by you giving us ratings, reviews, and sharing with friends and colleagues, it will help us transform other workplaces in a positive way. Really appreciate you. Enjoy today's episode with Sarah Adler, the CEO and founder of Wave. Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So there, you know, the last few years have been a little, little crazy for a lot of people. I think there's a lot of responsibility on employees. I, I think mental well-being is probably, I would just take a guess, at probably at a, at a low right now. What, what do you think is driving a lot of that? It's interesting. I think it depends on who you're talking about within the workplace. I think COVID pandemic is a big deal, a big factor in terms of driving emotional well-being down. But I think we were sort of already on that trend before COVID hit. So COVID isolation, loneliness, drinking too much, not being able to engage with other people really did exacerbate it. And then I think there's also a pretty big disconnect between employees who got really used to working from home and got really used to not commuting and got really used to um, a lot of the perks, the benefits from working at home and now are being asked to come back into the workplace, which is is hard. It's stressful and it's change. And whenever big changes happen, big systemic seismic changes, we see anxiety, we see depression, we see rising incidents of mental health. Do you feel like a lot of the well-being issues that uh, employees are facing or just people in, in general, they're personal habit-based reasons or it's workload and stress uh, from what happens in the workplace, a combination of both? Like, what do you, what do you think it stems from? I do. I think it is a, absolutely a systemic issue. It is a combination of both things. It's that many, many, many factors. I think there are generational factors. I think there are huge shifts in expectation around quality of life. I think there are macroeconomic factors where the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. And kind of what you can get with your paycheck is so much lower that why would I be that wedded to getting a paycheck? I also think that corporations 
organizations and employers have also not shifted or kind of gotten with the times around meeting the change in their employees where they are. So all of those things together add in social media and increased polarization, um, anger coming from the algorithms. Uh, So I think you have a lot, a lot, a lot of factors that are adding to this and they're all sort of combining at once. Yeah, I've noticed too. I feel like, I mean, I noticed this myself with technology and just being connected all the time that plays a huge factor. And we've gone from such like long form type of content to now these bite-sized things on TikTok and Instagram reels and just these micro things that just are, I think it drives me crazy personally, but that's what people tend to want. And I think it's impacting our well-being a little bit. What do you think? I do. I think there's a, there have actually been some great studies. A colleague of mine, Stanford, really looked at brain structure and how being on social media and technology really can structurally change the brain so that we, because of the reward system, the dopaminergic system in our brain, we're getting so much dopamine, we're getting sort of addicted to it, kind of makes us function a little bit more like a typical person with ADHD. So increases impulsivity, increases reactivity, to your point, makes you feel a little crazy. And also because we're engaging with it so much and so often, when we come off it, we're actually suffering from withdrawal. And so some of that irritability, I don't know that you can get after getting off of a screen all day, um, it's real. Your body is basically saying, wait, you just gave me a loaded dose of dopamine nonstop all day in these little short form bites. And now I'm, uh, I don't have it. What am I supposed to do? And, and that, that creates problems. Yeah. And one of those problems I see is like, if we're doing that in our personal time, we're scrolling through Instagram and TikTok, and then we're going to work where it's a little bit more monotonous, maybe long-term projects. Maybe if you're, if you're doing some sort of training, it's long form training that, you know, it could be an hour to two hours long. Employers are in a weird spot right here. Like how do you adapt to a changing desire of people when they're kind of programmed a certain way. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I do think when you're talking about employees who are sitting at their desk and they're getting the visual stimuli of looking at a person, talking on the video chat, they've got their Slack going, they've got their email. I don't know if you notice this in your meetings, but a lot of times, probably not in your, in your scene, but there's a lot of multitasking happening. People find ways to self-stimulate in order to keep themselves able to focus, which is actually, again, back to the ADHD analogy, pretty interesting, right? Because, you know, my my son, my uh, 13-year-old son who has ADHD, he needs to really sit there and focus in a class that is not a preferred class or something he's interested in. We give him a fidget. We give him a toy. We give him something to sort of increase his ability to, to pay attention. So I think employers actually could borrow a little bit from the ADHD strategy literature and even potentially supply their teams with fidgets, something we do at Wave. Um, I give my employees stress balls and little fidgets so that they can um, attend to their mindfulness and focus when they're in their meetings. Sarah, from your perspective with the Gen Z, uh, it's a very fascinating group. Um, A lot of really, really smart, talented people coming out of this generation. How have their lived experiences and growing up with technology, being digitally native, essentially, how has this affected their approach to work and their current state of well-being as well? 
Yeah, I think this is all of those systemic factors that we just kind of talked about really, really are amplified in digital natives. Not only are they sort of have higher incidence rates of depression, anxiety, stress, other mental health issues that are showing up in the workplace. And by the way, the workforce is going to be 30% digital native by 2030. So for any employers who don't think this actually really impacts them, it really does. And and I think there's a what's really happening is there's not only the attitude shift of Gen Z in terms of, and digital natives in terms of what they want to get out of a workplace, which is just coming crashing culturally into what boomer, Gen X, and older millennials think of, of what should happen in a workplace. So there's this expectation clash that is happening, but also some of those factors of whereas my father went to work and got a paycheck every day because he wanted to buy a house that's just not happening with Gen Z. And they're never going to be able to buy a house. They know it. So they're kind of like, why would I invest in a workplace environment that's not investing in me? So again, you know, we just saw Jody Foster come out and say, Gen Z is so annoying to work with. They're the worst. And I think, yeah, they can be annoying, but it's also, it's, a, it's something we really have to start to think about how to meet them where they are, because they're going to be in our lives <laughs> and they're not going to change their yeah. minds. So we really do actually have to make pretty significant shifts. Additionally, there's something else about digital natives, which is I view them almost through a, a trauma lens because digital natives are saturated, oversaturated with all of the terrible things that are happening in the world nonstop because they are on their phones and they always have been. And because they don't tend to communicate with each other through other ways besides on their phones, it really does create this foreshortened sense of future and kind of hopelessness around, well, there's the climate change, our world's not going to be here. And, you know, global pandemic on top of all the other global atrocities that are happening in this world without getting too political. Um, And they're seeing it inundated nonstop over and over and over. And that impacts them. Yeah. The comment you made about like somebody saying that Gen Z is annoying. I, I feel like every generation has always said that about the the newer generation. I'm, I'm a millennial and I know Xers and boomers were saying weird things about the millennials too. And yet here we are now in leadership positions and, and uh, we got Gen Z coming behind us. So I think uh, the approach should be seeking to understand those generations and, and really figure out how we can adapt and, and work with them effectively. I think that would be better for teamwork, collaboration, and our well-being in general. A hundred percent. And I think also to your point, Gen Z digital natives have been brought up and trained to communicate through, to your point, short form. So they text, they slack, there's, they're very, very comfortable. And then the minute you put them in an environment where long form sentences, formal emails, any sort of more traditional hierarchical communication strategies are at play, they flounder a little bit, they communicate poorly, which really annoys the millennials and the Gen Xers who have actually adapted quite well to more of these like hierarchical communication structures. And then, yeah, there's a lot of miscommunication happening, a lot of annoyance, a lot of unclear expectations, bad management um, that can come from that. I think one of the things that managers and leaders can do when they hire people is to ask them, how do you prefer to communicate? Because I know that I've, you know, I've had many employees over the years and they all like to communicate a little differently. And especially like to your point, the Gen Z coming up, they, they tend to like the short form. So text and Teams chats or Slack or whatever you're using, those, those might be a priority versus like, don't send the long email or don't 
have a meeting for everything that you want to bring up. Like, <laughs> I, I could not agree with that more. I think, um, I mean, good management 101 for any employee, regardless of their generation, is about setting very clear expectations and communicating around work style. I know when I hire someone new, I'm a psychologist, but I have a lot of, I'm also a manager, I have a lot of conversations about what is your preferred communication style? What are your expectations? What do you hope to get out of this job? Let me show you mine and let's ensure that there's a goodness of fit before we actually even take this any further. So I think it should start in the job interview process, even before we get to the point of where we're having our first day with an employee and and trying to understand their communication style. So we even like walk it back a little bit and think about, I like to say, think about um, hiring your employees, like you're kind of auditioning potential partners. (laughs) You really want to kind of understand if there's a goodness of fit there or an ability to communicate before bringing them onto your team, because you may have a rigid communication style that isn't going to work with someone who isn't super flexible. So let's get that out of the way, regardless of what's on their CV. Let's get that out of the way and understand that before we even bring them in the door. Sarah, you're a CEO and founder of an organization called Wave. We'll get into the details of what what you do there. But I'm curious, like when you're when you're scaling and growing a business, how do you effectively prioritize the well-being of your people inside the company? while also trying to grow the company and and making sure those things are always in alignment. I think that'd be challenging. How do you do it? It is incredibly challenging. And and the answer is probably poorly, but intentionally. So I think we certainly don't have it nailed, even though that's literally what we're doing for other entities as well. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm an OKR person and I'm a very sort of structured values mission, vision, values thinker. And so the way that I make sure that it does happen is that I set OKRs around people experience, around people management, around, I know it's a bad word these days, but diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really focus on keeping myself and the organization accountable in a highly visible way to those metrics. I'm a, I'm a data girl. And so if we're not meeting our metrics associated with retention, employee satisfaction, pay equity benefits, then we have to fix them the same way that we would fix our sales and marketing KPIs. I want to get into some workplace wellness questions for you because I feel like employers have have made an effort to build out wellness programs that really address physical, emotional, mental, all of those things, financial in some cases. Do you think they're doing a good job? Because I I just don't think these programs are working. Yeah, I think there was a New York Times article that came out yesterday that actually agrees with you 100%. And and someone did a a meta-analysis in the UK, actually, but the New York Times picked it up and wrote about it, basically saying exactly what you're saying is that all of these benefits or wellness packages that employers are trying to offer to their employees don't work. And we could spend uh, three hours on, on why they don't work and the reasons for that, but ultimately, what I really think it comes down to is that there are two factors here. There are structural factors around the workplace that absolutely have to change. And there are the benefits that you can offer your team that may impact their well-being so that they can do things like self-advocate better or that they are more flexible or that they have better communication strategies. So I think that a lot of these wellness kind of add-ons, there's a little bit of snake oil involved in terms of saying, oh, we're going to make everyone happy and better, but they do ignore the systemic factors where the company has to meet the employer where they are. And we have to cultivate that from the ground up. 
I also think one of the biggest, biggest flaws with a lot of these employee wellness offerings are that they don't measure outcomes. So they, it is very difficult to not only demonstrate any sort of benefit to the employee themselves, but it is very, very difficult because they don't measure anything to demonstrate an ROI to the amazing HR folks who are out there trying to sell this up and trying to make people happy. I mean, our unsung heroes in the HR world um, are sort of unfortunately tasked with demonstrating ROI for something that their benefits, wellness programs aren't even doing their part of the job to measure. And this is something that we are very intentional about in terms of measuring and demonstrating, collecting data, building out a tech infrastructure that is robust enough, making sure that people using our services are using our measurements so that we can actually provide aggregate, accurate reporting to our HR people so we can support them in demonstrating why this is not just a good thing on base, but it's actually a good thing for the company itself. And I think that without a lot of a priori design from a tech perspective, it's a really hard thing to do, especially when wellness programs are really just trying to get as many people in the door as possible. So we've tried to do that really differently, really intentionally. One thing I I hear a lot of employers offering is an employee assistance program. And and that that could be a, a nice benefit for employees who normally couldn't get access to like a counselor or therapist. But I feel like I know where I live in Oregon, what I feel like is there's a major shortage of really good qualified therapists out there. And there's such a demand for it right now. Are you seeing that? I mean, this is your area. Oh my gosh. that That's why I do what I do. Why we built Wave is because not only is there a, a sort of a nationwide supply and imbalance issue in terms of qualified providers to help deal with the mental health crisis that we're in, but generally people who look like me are the ones who can get access to them are people who, white women in their 40s, um, who, um, I forgot we're on a podcast here, who can get access to high quality care. And that's the other piece is not only is there a huge imbalance in terms of the number of providers, but the number of providers who are providing high quality care is kind of a black box, right? We don't know what people are actually doing in their therapy sessions. And that's really why any wellness package, any service, any benefit that's provided needs to be based in the science. There's so much information about treatments that work and what is effective. We should be designing all of our benefits packages and things that work. We should then be measuring it, as I already said, to demonstrate outcomes and efficacy ROI. And then the last thing is that we really need to be treating the teams that are providing services really well, (laughs) because ultimately how you treat your providers is how you're treating your end user. And that's something I think that gets missed a great deal. So let's get into Wave. There's a reason you started this and it could have been partly because there's just a uh, imbalance and supply demand of quality care. What are the other reasons? I mean, you're, you're a data girl, you said. So is it we're not doing things making decisions and providing care based on data and individual needs. Like walk me through all that. Yes. All of the above. Yes. So I think that we sort of jokingly say the thing that keeps me up at night, but the thing that keeps me up at night that I, um, in my postdoc 13 years ago, the thing that woke me up in the middle of the night was that we had all of these science-backed treatments in the ivory tower of Stanford that we know work if we can get them into people's hands and they are not getting into people's hands. So it's this idea of the access crisis is that things that work are either too expensive, they're relying on people like me who are overtrained to provide them, and then we're not using data to really support 
support and to demonstrate their efficacy when we move them out of the lab and into the world. And so this really prompted me to start thinking about measurement-based care, thinking, which I implemented at Stanford, thinking about scalability. How do we take these things that we know work and get them into everybody's hands? And this was kind of at the beginning of the digital health boom. And when I really started thinking about how can we use data, how can we use technology, and how can we use a cheaper version of me, a more scalable version of me, and get those things interacting in a way that we can get anyone care who actually needs it. And I think, you know, part of the problem in my field is that we treat mental health as an acute phase issue. So something happens and we treat it right away when really mental health is actually something that's more like a wave and that waxes and wanes over time. And there are times where we need a lot of mental health treatment and there's times where we need a really light touch. So being able to use measurement and data to understand who belongs where at what time is of paramount importance. And that's really the model that we use when we developed WAVE because that's what's going to be scalable. That's what's going to align the financial incentives between the employers and the patients and the providers, which is really a big deal. How does it work? How does WAVE work? Yeah. How does your app work? Yeah. So we have um, what's called a stepped care model, which is actually does exactly what I just said, sort of makes an assessment of where you are in your mental health space and then gives you what you need in real time. So whether that be an app only experience, because that's all you need or that's all you want right now, but there's always an opportunity to sort of step up in care as and if and when you need it with a real human being. And we use highly, highly trained lay healthcare providers health and wellness coaches who have gone through our proprietary training. And they're actually disseminating a treatment that I designed at Stanford that has been through randomized control trials, which is a fancy way to say science backed that we know it works. We know that um, your needs are going to shift and change. And so you're, you've got our app, you've got exercises, you've got things that you can do, interactive games, but you also have a real human being either by chat, by text message, or in person, not in person, over video, if you want it. We don't do actual in Person. Well, that's how you got to scale. You couldn't, you couldn't fly around and coach people. <laughs> it, would, it would not work. It's probably why you built an, a, a technology platform around this. So if an employer wanted to adopt something like this, which this is, this would be a very progressive thing for an employer to do is to, to adopt something like this. What do you think the benefits and challenges might be of getting adoption in the workplace? So once they've signed on with us and want to adopt, like what, what, how do they actually disseminate it? So we, we sort of tackle this, I think, in a little bit more of a service-oriented way, which is not super scalable, but we ultimately think it will drive engagement much more powerfully. We do some discovery and some needs assessment about your organization before we even start with you to really identify the places and the leverage points that might interfere with adoption. So I think a lot of companies like ours are very invested in plug and play, and we can do that. You can turn us on and then see what happens. But I think in order to really get adoption, it's a little bit about implementation science and communication, a little bit about evangelism um, throughout your teams, but also being able to really sort of, again, align those incentives of this is not just a benefit that we as an employer are checking a box for. This is a solution that we really fundamentally believe is going to help you thrive in the workplace and out. And it's also not just designed for, it's designed to, uh, to fix 
corporate culture as well. So it's a design to really interface with the systemic issues. So it's not marginalizing your employees by, by kind of throwing a solution at them and saying, oh, you need a mental health benefit. That's a you problem. So it's really an integration of like, no, this is an us problem. We're a team. Yeah. Because you have a technology platform, imagine the data that you get from it is incredible. How could employers leverage that data to take action or to tailor it to individual needs? I'm sure you've thought through all that. We have. And so we use data everywhere. I, we're a, I'm a data junkie. And what we have done is actually really, again, heavily invested in a technology infrastructure and a culture of data that allows us to sort of orient the user to giving us information about themselves that we can then aggregate and reflect back to the employer in ways that are pretty useful. As part of that discovery process, we do with them. Um, We don't just offer kind of out of the box data. We say, what is the data that is most useful for you? And how can we ensure that we actually get it? But because we have one of our key differentiators is that 75% of our users will actually give us data because it's data we give back to them to help them progress. We have so much more data than any of our competitors. And I can say that very honestly, because it's something we invested in from day one. Before we launched our first service, we made sure we had the infrastructure to do that. We can also, for innovative employers who want to hook up to their workday or hook up to their systems of data as well and do analysis, predictive analytics, and whatever metrics they want, we're happy to work with. We want to provide them whatever tools they need to make good decisions. Now that's outside of clinical data, which is about the individual. We don't give that data to employers. That's a no-no. We really sort of fundamentally believe data is, is one of our key differentiators. And so we want to make sure that our, again, from our HR benefits folks to our CEOs, to the CIOs, to whomever needs the, those aggregate data, we want to make sure they have it. And because of the way we've built, the sky's kind of the limit. I got kind of a last question for you, but it's a two-parter. What do you believe, and maybe you're building this app based on what you believe the future of a mental health care is supposed to look like. Um, so that, that's one is what do you think the future looks like for mental health care? And are you optimistic about people getting stronger mental health in the future? Or do you think it's going to get harder? Oh, wow. I think that's a both end. So the first question first, I think I am building what I think the future is, which is this intersection of really using data to understand who belongs, who needs what right now, so that we're not wasting resources. Because right now what we have is a very one-size-fits-all, very expensive model. And part of that is really being able to align the financial incentives of the stakeholders. So that's something that we've built around and we really fundamentally believe is the future. Now, if you want me to like get really wacky, we can start talking about how Gen AI is going to optimize our back end and potentially even interact with us. And would we want to add that as a stepped care? So we have a chat bot who can do 24 seven, but I'm a clinician. And so I fundamentally believe in safety first, but I do think that we will get there. And I do think that the AI that is, is coming out can really, really, really help us be more efficient, be better, faster, cheaper. And that goes back to measurement and data anyway. So Your second question, do I feel like people can get stronger and or will things get worse? Yes, both. I think that things, the world is going to get worse and that human beings will adapt and human beings will learn this. You know, I jokingly say to my daughter, because I have a very dark sense of humor, my 17 year old daughter, I'm like, why bother going to college? Just learn survivalist skills. Like that would actually in the next 20 years be like far more. So if you really want to talk about resilience, like 
go do combat training and survivalist. And I'm, I'm half joking around that, but I do actually think that the skills and the tools that we teach people to be emotionally resilient and to have emotional wellness are adaptable to whatever environment they're put in, right? Because when we're really talking about wellness, it's flexibility. It's the ability to communicate. It's the ability to be mindful and take a step back and assess your situation and then make informed choices that are either values aligned in today's world or survival aligned in another 25 years. So not to be a doomsayer, but I think skills we teach will prepare you for whatever. 100% 100% agree. I think we, over the last probably couple of decades where, you know, we shifted a lot to liberal arts type uh, schooling and, and secondary education in that, you know, we're preparing for white collar professional level jobs. Whereas like, what about the trades <laughs> and other, other skills to your point where what we actually need those too. And so I think the pendulum swung way too far. And now I f- feel like it's heading a little bit more back to the equilibrium. Absolutely. There's a, I mean, I don't know if you're a South Park fan or you're listening or maybe not, but there was a great. Oh, I, I grew up on South Park. I don't, I don't listen to it much or watch it much anymore, but. There was a great episode on how Gen AI is going to upset the marketplace so that carpenters and tradesmen are going to be the most needed people. And that will create lots of billionaires for carpenters, which is <laughs> sort of a fun South Parkian thought exercise. I'll have to check that out. Sarah, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, where do you want to point people to? Connect with you on LinkedIn or check out your website? Any- Please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Dr. Sarah Adler, I think is my handle, but you can just put my name in on LinkedIn, right? That's that's the way to do it. I uh, also absolutely, I think, you know, for people who are struggling or who want to check out um, kind of what we're doing, feel free to download the app. It's in the app store. It's Wave Life. Wave Life, I think coaching app is what it says or check out our website. That's fine too, wavelife.io and yeah we're excited to help where we can my guest today has been sarah adler sarah thanks for coming on the show thanks so much the views thoughts and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views thoughts and opinions of zenny mhr or the host brandon laws the material and information presented on transform your workplaces for general information and educational purposes only Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.